0: As I mentioned a few moments ago, we are still in the book of Acts. We will finish this morning uh, through chapter 8. We've been tracking in the first part of Acts. And really, the book of Acts, at chapter 9, it takes a major shift. That's where Saul, who is ravaging the church in chapter 8, is converted in chapter 9. And and Luke, the writer, also becomes a participant. And so, uh, from 9 on, you you have... The the church is just spreading and and the the Acts of Paul and the other apostles. But up till Acts chapter 8, we've been really watching how the church is growing from the 120 uh, through the Holy Spirit coming to the 20,000 or so we are at now by Acts chapter 8. And just a couple of reminders. Number one, the book of Acts, many have called it the Acts of the Apostles, which would work. Others would call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which is certainly true, or the Acts of Jesus. It's all three. And the thing I want us to remember is that when Luke wrote this account to Theophilus, he wrote as a second volume. All that Jesus has done is volume one in the Gospel of Luke. And remember, we're now looking at all that Jesus continues to do. So Jesus is in our passage. Jesus is spreading his church. And what we're going to see this morning in chapter 8, is that Jesus reaches to faraway places. The gospel is going out, and we're going to see that. Um, the backdrop to this passage is Paul, or Saul, is um, approving of Stephen's execution, and then ravages the church in Jerusalem so that the, the Christians are scattered. And Philip, if you'll remember in chapter 6, Stephen and Philip and five others were, were laid hands upon and were anointed to go out and preach the good news and be uh, the servers and other, other functions. We watch chapter seven, we watch Stephen come out and preach and then be the first martyr. In chapter eight, we're gonna see Philip, the second person listed in chapter six, go out and actually bring the gospel to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which in this case would be Ethiopia. Uh, so let's read together, starting at verse 26 to the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "'Justice was denied him. "'Who can describe his generation? "'For his life is taken away from the earth. "'And the eunuch said to Philip, "'About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, "'about himself or about someone else?' "'Then Philip opened his mouth "'and began with the scripture, this scripture. "'He told him the good news about Jesus.' Indeed, thank you, God, for this word. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for the way you are carrying forth the work of your church and you are superintending all of the means necessary to usher in the return of Christ. And Lord, this morning you have ordained this service and this time, even these few moments, that we might better understand your gospel to free us to be more alive for you. And I pray you would attend to that end. Amen. Um, I'm a big J. Who knows this? I'm a big James Taylor fan. Have I talked about that before? Uh, Love James Taylor. Tom Carnes loves. I think Eddie. All the to be an elder, you have to love James Taylor. At our church, so those of you that are interested in James Taylor, let me know. Uh, I've been to a few of the concerts, and one of the concerts, I think the last one I went, my wife and I were in the in this. Arena. It was Lloyd Noble, by the way, so it's perfect. It's at OU. Uh, is that the arena? Is that what it's called at OU? And we are enjoying the concert, and it ends. And unbeknownst to all the regulars that don't know James Taylor, he's going to come back out. They all start leaving. Actually, I've been to a concert since, and I'm sorry. Sorry, Carnes. This is the one that... So they con- they're all leaving, but Emily and I know he comes out and does his encore. So we fight the traffic, and we go down, and we get all the way to the floor, and we're making our way and and we're gonna get there and he's gonna come back out and we're gonna get to see James Taylor straight to his face except there's this bouncer, right? And, And there's this big guy and Emily and I get up to him and James Taylor's starting to walk up on stage and we're real excited and he looks at Emily and he motions her by and he looks at me and he stops me. I'm just stuck on the outside. She has to relay to me the story Of shaking his hand and all this stuff. Um, So thankfully the Carnes rescued me and we got to go back to another James Taylor concert. But um, what does it feel like to be stuck on the outside? Have you ever had that moment, even as i share with you this moment, to be someone who's so close, like you feel the energy, you feel the excitement you want to get in and yet you're stuck. Because that really is what this passage is about. This Ethiopian eunuch who Uh, has come to Jerusalem to worship, and we're gonna talk about some of the details behind the reason, but he's not allowed into the actual worship of the people of God, right? And it's heartbreaking. And yet what we find is Jesus comes to our rescue in that place, and he corrects that, and he reverses that. And what we find is the Holy Spirit in this passage has orchestrated these events to free this person, this eunuch, to free you and I to have full access, to correct that being blocked away from Jesus. So I'm hoping we'll unpack in this passage maybe some of the ways we step outside of that, the ways we carry shame and guilt that we don't think we're getting full access to Jesus. And I'm hoping we'll see in this story with this eunuch that indeed we are invited right into the middle of what God is doing. So the three points we're going to look at are the people... The process and the possibility of being invited in with the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the people in our our chapter, chapter 8. What's going on? What's the background? Um, If you know the story of Israel, it was divided, a divided kingdom, which led to its being taken captive in the Old Testament. And over time, Samaria became the country in between Galilee, where Jesus was raised and ministered, and then Judea, which is in the south, where Jerusalem is. So imagine that the space between Judea and the north, there's the Sea of Galilee. You have the uh, Jordan, excuse me, uh, Galilee in the north with the Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan. And then in the south, you have Jerusalem. in, In between, you have this area for the Samaritans where they've lived and they've intermarried with other nations, other religions. They worship God on a different place. Remember the woman in John 4 at the well who's a, who's a Samaritan woman Jesus is talking to and they begin to debate about where worship should happen? That's a Samaritan. Remember, Jesus even gives the parable of the good Samaritan. That is, here, who should be your neighbor? Right? And Jesus goes to such an extreme to say even a Samaritan can be your neighbor. In fact, it's the Samaritan who cares for the the person who had been beaten up who was Jewish. So Jesus is radically saying this outsider can be a neighbor and the teachers of the law wouldn't have it. And yet in chapter eight, Philip has gone out into Samaria. We didn't read it, but that's just the backdrop. And he shared the gospel of Jesus and they believed the gospel. Then we come to our passage. In verse 26, uh, we have this new moment with Philip still being told by an angel to go to Jerusalem, to go to this um, outside of Jerusalem to meet with this person who's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So, Samaria is one place that God promises to send the gospel, but he also says that he'll send the gospel to the ends of of the earth and Ethiopia, according to most scholars at this time, it's not present day Ethiopia, but this place, this city, this, this um, kingdom is as far south as they really knew existed, a thousand miles south of Jerusalem. And more than likely, this person was Jewish, which is crazy to think about because of the diaspora. Uh, he was either a proselyte and became Jewish or was born into a Jewish uh, family or a situation. But for him, to go and worship uh, was what he was expected to do as a Jew, right? He was also Ethiopian, which means he was black. Uh, every scholar would agree with that. But he was, the most interesting piece is he's a eunuch. And that is a very interesting uh, situation. So I, I did some research on eunuchs. There's a spectrum. But just the general con- uh, consensus on a eunuch is a male who cannot have children, the spectrum would be on one side, Uh, it may be a birth situation it may be a a moral choice but for the most part eunuchs in the ancient world had had castration um, and so they were made that way often by captors but there's even records of eunuchs choosing that situation because what it would allow for them to do is move into roles within a kingdom that they may not otherwise have for example Uh, One of the big concerns would be dynasties. So if you have a dynasty and someone comes in and and gathers followers, they would go off with their children and have their dynasty, right? So for a eunuch, that wasn't a threat. There's also the situation many of you have heard about probably where if a eunuch's around females, uh, it's it's a way of trusting them to serve the entire kingdom and not do things that would hurt your kingdom. So I'm not going to go into any more detail about the physical nature of the eunuch other than... It would be really, really, it'd be really sad. It would be like a really hard thing. And what you find is this eunuch has this disposition that is awful. In Deuteronomy 23.1, the law says a eunuch, a man who is, and I won't read the exact verse, you can look it up, in that disposition cannot join the assembly. So here's the bind. Here's a person who believes and even is a follower of, of God, of Yahweh. This man has taken a thousand mile trek from, wherever, from Ethiopia, the Ethiopia of his day, up to the temple, maybe even during the Passover, maybe during this Pentecost, and yet he can't go in and worship. He's still on the outside. And the, the bind is, on one hand... He's, he's risen in the ranks, like he is over the treasure of and Candace is more than likely uh, the title of a series of queens from that from that, um, from that kingdom. In fact, it says that the the, uh, the king of this Ethiopian kingdom often had zero responsibilities in Candace, that is the queen in charge would run the whole kingdom and the, and this man, this eunuch would be the treasurer, so he had tons of power, tons of just prestige, even the, even the chariot, the fact that he calls out to the chariot driver to say, stop, like it, it sounds elegant. And yet he gets all the way to this worship place and he can't go in. And as I process what that would feel like, the hiddenness of being a eunuch, the fact that no one really knows it, right, unless it's been your, unless someone else has told other people or unless you've gone off and advertised it. But it's this truth about yourself. And to me, that feels a lot like the concept of just shame in general. I've talked about the soul of shame before. Uh, I want to read you a quote from the, the author, Kurt Thompson. To be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. It is the primary tool that evil leverages, out of which emerges everything that we would call sin. It is born out of a sense of there's something wrong or there's something not right with me or I'm not enough and therefore it exudes the aroma of being unable or powerless to change one's condition or circumstances. Thompson goes on to explain how even in your neurobiology when shame overcomes you, your, your brain's wiring becomes, you become unable to think clearly, right? Have you ever felt in a moment just really awkward? Like, do you feel awkward ever? Like right now, do you feel awkward because the rest of us think you're awkward? You're the one, that's what, that's what shame does. It makes you feel alone. I remember going to a wedding shower and we were going to something afterwards where we sort of needed to be dressed up. So we really dressed up and we showed up to this wedding shower and we are so overdressed. I felt I couldn't get it off my mind. Have you ever had that experience or being underdressed? Or have you ever gone to the bathroom and looked in the mirror and saw that green thing and thought how many conversations did I have Leading into this moment, I talked to my boss. I talked to that person. You know, that's shame. It's not just, oh, there's a fact. The fact is I've got a green thing in my tooth. I'll take that out of my tooth, and then I'll go on my way. It's the feeling of worthlessness that overcomes you. Now, those are all minor one-off examples. But I really think if we all were to begin to explore our own story, we have a lot of shame. We have things we're covering In fact, often it's the most beautiful, the most with it people that have the most to cover, right? Often the people that seem to have everything going right, if you got to know them a little bit and they would confide in you, they might tell you, I suffer from so much shame. What you see is an outer shell. I'm trying to put on this outer reflection. And here we have this eunuch, this person, we have the, Even the um, Samaritans, I mean, those were the Samaritans, the Jews called them half-breeds. Nothing they could ever possibly do would allow them to come in and be considered a viable member of the community. And so I want us, as we look at this passage on, on this Ethiopian, to just understand that the Holy Spirit is pursuing a person who is on the outside, And we really do have the requirement as a reader of the scripture to ask ourselves, where do we fit in with that person? Is that something we struggle with? Where are we struggling with shame? Where do we not think we're fully accepted? Right? So we'll build on that as we go because I want to talk about the process now, point number two, of how this eunuch begins to deal with these things. And I really love the process outlined in this passage. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring us into the community. We're going to be a celebrated member of God's people. And point number one is we have to first identify that we are on the outside, right? We have to recognize the ways we feel that. Point number two then is there's this process of understanding it. And we see it in our passage. And I just want you to see um, it really... It really centers on the concept of humility the word humility is not in our passage but as I studied this Ethiopian eunuch and what he's doing he's just completely like a child wrestling with this with this passage of Isaiah and wanting so badly to know the gospel um, let's look at the two things he's doing number one uh, his humility is allowing him to read out loud this text okay so he's reading out loud this text um, if you look at verse 29, And the Spirit said to him, Go to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading. I've, I've read that story so many times, and I just thought, why is this person reading out loud? Have you ever wondered that? It turns out, as I've studied the commentators, that that would be a normal way of reading the ancient texts. Now, he's reading Isaiah, which is Hebrew, but more than likely he's reading a Greek version of that text, the Septuagint, which was translated about 100 years before the birth of Jesus because so many spoke Greek. It'd be like our English version today. It's very helpful to have, by the way, the Greek New Testament or the Old Testament because you can see how words were used over time as we look at the Greek New Testament. But nonetheless, he's reading it out loud. And when you and I want to learn something, we often read it out loud, right? Like if a paragraph strikes you as hard to understand, you'll stop and you'll read it out loud and it... You, you kind of have to chew on the words. And I just want to say that takes humility because so often when something doesn't make sense immediately, we want to just turn the page. We want to move on. We hate learning. I've noticed that as a parent with children that learning is hard and often the child at whatever point decides, you know what, this is too much. I'm never going to learn this. I'm just, that's not my gift set. I'm going to move on. I'm just not that way. And the parent wants to gently walk them through the awkwardness of what it feels like to to stumble, whether it's through reading or through an exercise or through sports or knowledge or learning. And when, when they start to get mastery, it's like a whole new world. That takes humility, right? It takes this kind of really difficult plotting along. We see this in the parables where Jesus says, let them who have ears understand, and you think, oh, what if you're not one of those people? And I've, I've shared this many times, but I'm fascinated how he says that right at the beginning of teaching the parables. He's just shared the parable of the seeds, and then he turns to his disciples, he says, do you all understand? And they said, no. We have no idea what you're talking about. And then he begins to teach them a the parable. That's humility. Not knowing automatically isn't the problem. It's are we willing to stay in the pain in the challenge of the scripture? Are we willing to read it out loud? Are we willing to process our life in that space between stimulus and response that's very awkward? Does that make sense? Are we willing to learn? I think in our culture we are so opposed to learning. Even with all the videos online that seem so helpful, sometimes it's our attempt to not have to go through the difficulty of really learning, right? And so I love that this Ethiopian has made it through 53 chapters of Isaiah from Jerusalem to this place where he's sitting on the side of the road, reading out loud and still has no idea what he's reading. Second part of the process of humility is you need a human being, right? You need a human being. He says, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? Now, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, so often we have this idea of the things that just come to our mind. We'll often use language like, the Spirit told me this. Or I had a vague feeling and I'll say that was the Spirit. I don't wanna downplay how the Holy Spirit works. What I want to do is show how the Holy Spirit works in this passage. You would think the Holy Spirit could have just taken this Ethiopian who's a, a follower of Yahweh, having Isaiah in his hand, and given him the impression of what it means. But what does he do? He brings a person, right? He brings in Philip. And so Philip comes in and explains, hey, I would like to tell you what this passage means. And talk about humility. The eunuch invites him up into this chariot to teach him about Scripture. Are you and I leaning on other people? Do we really think other people can help us? Um, it, recently, Emily reminded me. Emily and, and um, Brian uh, went. To, and I don't know if Julie's here. Went to this training at Allender that I went through a few years ago, and they use an example that I'm going to show you a slide of. Hope I don't break all the rules. There's going to be a slide, um, but it's an example of how we need to be connected to people. And here's the story behind the slide. Prior to it going up, the two babies are premature twins. Right, they came out, they've been in the NICU. One of them is thriving or living, one is at the brink of not making it, and they've tried everything. And finally a nurse, as a last-ditch effort, decides to put the two babies into the same bassinet. The brother, I think they're brothers, or a brother or sister, they're twins. Okay, show the slide. Can you see this? I don't think they positioned that arm. They, the goal was to put them by each other skin to skin so that the heartbeat would begin to be on the same pace. And the baby on the right puts the arm around the baby on the left. Okay, you can take this slide now. Uh, we need people. We need people to look at us, to care for us, to to lean in. And yet they can't do it if we're not humble. If we're not if we're not willing to let them into our lives. Let me ask you, just as an exercise, imagine not yet having had this, but say a breakthrough spiritually happens in the next week or two. If you were to describe how that might happen, how many of you think in your mind, I'm sitting alone with my Bible? You know, how many of you think that way? I do. And by the way, yes, absolutely. Me, by myself, with scripture, the Spirit is present. But how often do I actually envision another person sitting with me? Another person listening to me? Another person saying to me, let me tell you how I read that. Let me help you understand. Even as I'm studying scripture, I'm turning to other people who've gone before me for their insight. And many of you are doing the same thing. We need each other, right? So the process of humility is is the way the Lord brings us out of our shame because shame so often wants you to be isolated by yourself. Nobody knows you. You're putting on a front. And the scriptures call us to, through humility, I think the spirit is saying, bring others in. And then finally, I just want to talk about the possibility of what, what actually happens for this eunuch. Third point. Stephen, has, or, uh, Stephen Philip has come into this chariot, and it says he began, he opened his mouth. That's That's sort of a prophetic way of saying he began to speak the word of God. Verse 35 of chapter 8. And beginning with this scripture, he told him, the eunuch, the good news about Jesus. And just a few chapters later, in chapter 56 of Isaiah, listen to what Stephen maybe read to him. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and better than daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you hear that promise to the eunuch. So he's pouring into this passage, and he's hoping for some sort of good news. And, and right there in 56 of Isaiah, you see the gospel open up that there will be no outsiders, that you will be welcomed into the midst, right? That's the good news. But listen to what he had to start with in verse 32 of chapter 8 of Acts. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And remember, the eunuch is asking, is this, about, is this about this writer, Isaiah, or someone else? That's a very normal question. Jeremiah himself uses the technique of talking about himself in the future in that way. Um, Paul, in the New Testament, famously says, I know a man who was caught up into the third heavens. Um, so what you have is a, t- a type of prophecy where you would do that, but that's not at all what's going on. What... Philip explains to this eunuch is that this man is Jesus, whom this eunuch probably heard about while being in Jerusalem during that time. And he explains to him that Jesus, like a sheep, led to the slaughter. He now understands that he is the Passover lamb. But he's silent. And in his humiliation, justice was denied him. He is the only living person who's ever received an unjust, a fully, truly, zero justice death. Like everybody else, we know from the fall, that's kind of what we're heading toward. Jesus is the only one who should have never died, and yet it was taken from him. And yet Stephen says, this is good news. This is good news. In fact, after, I do it again, I keep saying Stephen, I'm sorry, Philip. And after Philip shared this gospel with him, Listen to what the eunuch says in verse 36. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What is he saying? What is keeping me from finally entering in the holy of holies? What's keeping me from finally being identified as one of those who are full-fledged citizens of heaven? If you are a baptized Christian, and that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you have full access, full rights as sons and daughters, and you are a full fledged citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? Is that your hope? Let's look at the result of what this Ethiopian does. They came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. We don't think it was like a physical floating away. What we think is we don't know. We, I don't know, and the people I've read don't really know. Um, This has been compared to the story of of Emmaus where the two disciples are walking outside of Jerusalem. They've heard, they've been with Jesus. They've known about the the, um, crucifixion. They've heard about the empty tomb. They're puzzled, and Jesus comes along and says, what are y'all talking about? And they think, they look at him like, don't you know what's going on? They have no idea who he is. But it's when they break bread, they see who he is, and he explains the whole picture to them. And it says, going into the Old Testament, he shows all the scriptures that point to him. And then he seems to be taken away. And, and what almost every commentator says is, this is a picture of how the Spirit is working that Philip has used to come in, deliver the good news, and he's gone but the Ethiopian is now going to take that gospel to the far reaches as a disciple and as a discipler. But I love the end of 39. I'm going to read it again. So the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. That simply means the eunuch no longer had relationship with Philip. He goes on to his own kingdom, but he went on his way rejoicing, celebrating. Do you celebrate? Do you rejoice? Do you get excited about the truth of your identity in Christ? Or do you find yourself constantly like Peter in the water, looking around you at all the things that prove otherwise? To live by faith, to live out this gospel, is to understand the truth is the Holy Spirit, at some point, revealed to you the truth of who you are in Christ, revealed to you the truth of who Christ is and what he went to to save you, what lengths he went to. Do you know that story? Like it would be a really good exercise for everybody to write down their own story. Where did you first hear it? Where did it first make sense? What are the theological truths behind it? What are the things in your life that you puzzle over? In other words, going back to point two, now that we know the gospel, are you reading it out loud? Are you saying it out loud? Are you living in that space? See, right now, I'm giving you information. And in a little while, we'll finish the service, and you'll go out those doors, and then your Sunday will continue, and your Sunday evening, and your Monday. But are you going to take this information and do anything with it? It's up to you, right? Like, the Spirit has come in and given you Scripture, and the Spirit wants you to take the Word of God and to chew on it. I think so often we're afraid it won't make any sense. You're right where the eunuch was. It won't sometimes. Read it again. Pray. Confess, Lord, this is not making any sense. Turn to somebody. Turn to a brother or a sister in Christ who can sit with you and walk you through the passages, walk you through your own story. You can share life together. I love the story of the eunuch because he didn't just magically understand everything, but he plotted through it. He labored through it, but he goes away rejoicing and being ce- and celebrating. I think for so many of us, it's almost too easy because we haven't been an actual eunuch. And so I think we have to ask ourselves in what ways do we identify with being an outcast? We have to understand that. And we have to process this passage in that way. Let us pray. Lord, teach us like this brother, this brother who went on to undoubtedly win many souls to your faith in distant lands, who undoubtedly, Lord, is in the hall of saints. Lord, though he did not have physical offspring, like we read in Isaiah 56, Lord, he was many, he was part of many of those who would come to know you. Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us to lean into you, teach us to understand that your involvement in our spiritual lives still takes our faithful effort at reading Scripture, at looking at our own story, at plodding through, even reading out loud, meditating, chewing. But, Lord, it also takes turning to other people and admitting we need help. Lord, let us have Phillips come into our lives to come in and sit with us and help us to see the goodness of you, Jesus. But Lord, I also pray as we think about our response that we would go away rejoicing by being Philip to other people. Teach us, Lord, to look for those people in our very lives, we know them already, who need a word, who need help, who need an arm around their neck, that we would show them your gospel. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.